0: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Writing biography is a challenge and so writing a dual biography is double that. Today I'm going to be talking with Jean Zimmerman about her new book entitled Love Fiercely, A Gilded Age Romance, which is a dual biography of Edith and Newton Stokes, a couple who were the Brangelina of their age. Hi Jean, thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, um, well, I, um, I'm, i um, let me think, I'm uh, a New Yorker, I've been um, living in the New York area and outside of New York for um, the last, since I was in college that 's a long time ago, <laughs> and um, I started writing books around uh twenty five years ago now and i 've um, produced a number of different um books on different topics, just according to what interested me and um, what um, what I thought I could do and what sources were available. So um, this is, um, Love Fiercely is the most recent book that, that I've come out with, and um, I think it was really fun to work on. It was a great project, and um, what else would you like to know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's just dive right into the book then. Um, okay. I wrote this question, but I realize it's like four questions, so feel free to tackle them however okay. you like. Um, okay. I think they are all kind of related. Uh, what drew you to this story in particular? And also, this is a dual biography. You've got both Newton and Edith. So what... What led you to settle on writing a book about both of them rather than just focusing on one of those two individuals?
1: Okay, that's a good question. Um, or, or, that's good questions. <laughs> um, what, what happened was this. Um, for a previous book that focused on a family living in colonial New York, I worked with a map, a, a really amazing map um, of the city at that time that was uh, drawn in 1660, and it was really the first street plan of New York. Um, when I was researching this and I was using this map, I discovered that it was in this incredible uh, series of books, six enormous books, that together were called The Iconography of Manhattan Island. And I thought, who would come up with this crazy idea? Who would execute this? And I learned a little bit about I.N. Felt Stokes then, um, but not very much because nobody had produced um, a real extensive work on the man at that time. So, I wanted to find whatever I could about him, and that led me to a painting that he appeared in um, that was um, by Sargent and currently hangs in the metropolitan and In that painting, he 's sort of hanging back in the shadows, and he is um, he 's very much um, overshadowed by the woman that 's with him in the painting so um, I went from a map to a man to a painting to a woman, and the woman was Edith, his wife and it became a story of two people rather than one person um in which each each, in which each of them played an equal role
0: where does the title come from
1: um well i wanted it to be a sort of a um a, a letter from fiercely which was edith's childhood nickname and she was a fierce person throughout her life she was very independent she was determined um she had a lot of experiences and i wanted that to be prominent in the title
0: so by way of an introduction to these two characters edith and newton can you tell us a bit about their childhoods and the relationship between their families
1: Sure well, um the very wealthy in those days were really one big family, so they knew each other from childhood um they both had house their families both had houses on Staten Island, and so they knew each other when they were growing up um From there, they both moved back into New York City, back into Manhattan, and their families um were Attached to each other throughout their lives, but they sort of drifted apart uh, until later. Um, they attended the same dancing schools. They they went to the same places. They would have attended the theater together and that kind of thing. But they weren't really involved uh, until um, when they were until they were in their mid twenties.
0: And the Minturns fell on hard times um,
1: around the time of Edith's coming out, right? That's right, at the time of her debut um they had uh he, the, the father had a setback and it was very serious and they didn't know whether or not the family would recover um and so it ended up with her instead of wearing silk for her debut, like all the other girls did, she had to wear cotton and it was um you know it was a formative experience for her uh the family did recover and uh, reattained attained their former wealth. So it wasn't um, it wasn't a lifelong tragedy for her, but it did I think that it did cause her to think about the state of wealth and the state of her wealth um, and what could happen to people.
0: Do you think that shaped her proclivity for um, philanthropy later on?
1: yeah I think it probably did i mean she was she she and Newton both went through their lives both rich and reformers, and you know a number of people did that in those days, but they did it probably um more than some others and she spent a lot of her life helping society in various uh ways, whether it was through the university settlement society or the kindergarten association or um being um an advocate of women's rights at that time. So I think that probably her her early experience did shape her.
0: So one of Edith's big claims to fame is that her image was used for Big Mary at the Chicago World's Fair in 1892. Can you talk a bit about how she became involved in this because it's kind of scandalous for a single young woman at the time, and what the yeah. effect of the statue was?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, she um, Daniel Chester French had a studio in New York City at that time, and there circles would have uh crossed in those days and she um they they both attended a a, um, a series of soirées at um a, um at an, a uh, shared acquaintances um uh house at that time and um so they would have known each other she um had um a propensity to appear in what was called a tableau vivant at that time, which was kind of a parlor game um, that um, the young ladies and some men of the upper crust participated in where they would act out either a scene from the Bible or a famous painting. And they would do it um, still, they would do it um, in a stationary way, uh, posing within kind of a frame, a big frame, like a big picture frame, as I said, at a party. So she had experience Posing, and she was known as somebody that took part in these tableaux Vivant, and um, I think that's probably how he got to know her. But as you said, it was—it was, it was um, if not. Scandalous per se. I don't think that it was a scandal for her to pose for him. But even so, it was something that not every young woman would do at that time. I mean, she was posing in a a Greek um, toga-like outfit in his studio uh, with bare arms. And when he executed the um, the statue, which was sixty five. Uh, feet tall and was was very um apparent at the w- World fair and there were thousands upon thousands of people streaming underneath it every day. there she was, you know it was a likeness of her, and her family and friends would have been very aware of her participation in this, so that took some guts to do that
0: yeah and then the image also kind of went viral, right? It can still be seen in different <laughs> statues today.
1: Right, absolutely. Um, there were some um some gentlemen who decided that they wanted to take the the, the likeness of uh, the Republic to New York City, and so they got a smaller version of it made they They brought it to New York and they put it up in a a famous department store at that time um uh, on the Ladies' Mile, which was where all of the department stores were and it was there in the middle of a fountain in New York where everybody could see it as they came by and that That must have been pretty funny also, I think for her to just to see that. This place where she was accustomed to going all the time, I'm sure, to do her own shopping, um, that there she was, right in the middle of the floor like that.
0: So how did Newton come back into Edith's life as
1: a romantic character? Well, he had wooed her um, over the years. He had to work to win her. She was friendly with him, but she wasn't impressed by his wealth, which was uh, his family's wealth far exceeded her family's wealth uh, for one thing. Um, But she wasn't impressed by that, or she didn't appear to be. They had danced with each other at various parties, and he had sent her flowers on occasion, but she wasn't really rising to the bait. at one point, she went to a New Year's party, a New Year's weekend party at his family's home, which was a huge hundred-room home in the Berkshires, and she went with her family to go to a, a ball there over the weekend, and um, he proposed to her. She turned him down. Um, he left. Rather than uh, making more of an effort, he went back to Paris, where he was studying, and um sent her letters. She didn't respond. And finally, very romantically, I think, her sister decided to take matters into her own hands and sent a little snippet of a picture of, of Edith's face to uh, to Newton in Paris and said, come and get her. Um, somehow she knew that Edith, you know, maybe Edith had confided in her that she actually was more interested than it appeared. And so he came rushing back to uh, Quebec, where her family was at that time, and um Spent a few weeks there, proposed, she finally accepted, and they were married about two months later.
0: I want to bring you back around though, because can you talk a bit more about the refusal? Because you really do a good job in the book of putting this in context of the obviously it's a big deal to have right. your marriage proposal turned down now, but in Victoria right. times it was had such social importance.
1: Right, it was. It was. I mean that's not it's not something that um a woman really Uh, should do. I mean, she was, she, here they were a perfect match and, um, and, and he was, uh, he was sort of the ideal mate in a certain way. So the refusal was really, um, how can I say it? Emasculating, I guess, in a certain way. And, um, and it was something that, uh, people really, they talked about, they, um, there were cartoons that illustrated the refusal and all the reasons why uh, a man would be refused, whether because he was not nice to look at or he didn't have enough money or, you know, all the different reasons why somebody would be refused. So it was something that was definitely sort of a, um, 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 I don't know, a lightning rod at that time.
0: Uh, so Edith and Newton married during the Gilded Age. What was the status of women during this time?
1: um well it was um it was complex um it was changing there were women the the, the word feminism had not yet made its appearance uh, on our shores at that time uh, but the idea of women's rights was uh becoming known and the new woman who was somebody very much like Edith was a person that either was admired or Detested uh, depending on who you were, and women were doing a lot of athletic things that they hadn 't done before they were going out into the workplace in a way they hadn 't before I mean even just the very idea of a woman on a bicycle could be a very politically charged um, symbol at that time, and of course uh, women were working on um getting the right to vote, although that wouldn't come to pass for some years, but it was already underway, and uh, that's something that Edith participated in when she went with her mother and sister um, to a a convention in Albany uh, to try to get the the vote for women, but of course it didn't pass.
0: After their marriage, they moved to Paris. What were they doing there?
1: Well, he was studying architecture. She was um, learning French, apparently. Uh, I don't know if she was doing a whole lot more than that. But they were young and in love, and they were enjoying being together. It was their honeymoon, really, more than anything else. And um, his, he he wanted to pursue his career, um, and so he was working in various ateliers at the time. and um, And they were just beginning their lives together.
0: So how did they get involved with John
1: Singer Sargent? That was through a family friend. And um, somebody, a mutual acquaintance, approached him and said, could you paint, um, could you paint her portrait? And he said, I would be delighted to, but it was very difficult because it was not um, something that was easy for him to accomplish. His schedule was extremely busy at that time. He was beginning to work on the uh, murals for the Boston Public Library, which are immense. And so he didn't know whether he'd be able to do it. His schedule slightly cleared up. He said, okay, I can. It was supposed to be a wedding present for the two of them from a family friend, and it cost a great deal of money uh, but their friends could afford this um, so he said if you come to me in London then I will paint your portrait and so that's what they did they went and they spent um, I believe it was six weeks altogether together uh, in London and he started to work on Edith's portrait so can you
0: describe the the sitting process and the evolution of the portrait itself because it was sure. quite quite arduous <laughs>
1: Sure, sure. Um, Well, she sat, they called it sitting to a painter. So she sat to Sargent, now I'm trying to remember exactly how many times it was. It was, I believe, uh, 25 times. And so that's including when he started on her face, he started on her dress. Um, He was making some progress. um, And then what happened is that um, he didn't like how it was coming out. And he said he was basically or it seemed as though he was going to, to throw to throw in the towel. Um and so they went away one day very discouraged and thinking, Oh no, we're not going to have this after all and but they came back the next for the next appointment and tried to find something else for Edith to wear because he hadn't been happy with this gown that she had this blue gown that she had been wearing. And she was very flushed and um perspiring slightly, and she was wearing casual clothes, clothes that looked like the clothes that a young woman might wear um, to play tennis in those days or possibly to go bicycling. And he looked at her and he said, I want to paint you just as you are. And so that's how she ended up looking so uh, casual, modern, strong, all the things that her portrait turned into. And not only that, but... um, At one point, they were supposed to have a greyhound dog that was going to be a um, a prop for her to lean her hand on, and the dog didn't materialize its owner had taken it out of town or something like that, Um, and so Sargent decided to have Newton pose in the picture as well, and that's how he becomes uh, sort of a foil for her, somewhat in the shadows of that portrait.
0: Uh, in the book, you mentioned that the portrait offered, quote, a new female paradigm. Um it's obviously a very stark contrast to Sargent's other portraits that he'd done before that. But how did right. it offer, can you explain this a little bit?
1: Sure. Um, well, as I said, you know, she, she, she's standing straight out front with this look on her face of um, bright, um, beautiful, active, vivid, um, you know, everything that her face is. You know, I love Sargent's work and, um, and I love his more, his more traditional portraits of women, but nothing looks like Edith does in this portrait. Also, she's wearing, um, a jacket that has very broad shoulders and she's wearing a bow tie, which exactly matches her husband's bow tie, a black bow tie. Um, her skirt is enormous and takes up a lot of space in the, in the canvas. And, um, she's holding a boater hat, and she's holding it, something that I think is very interesting. She's holding it right in front of, right at, at a crotch level of her husband. And I think that this was something that, um, people who were very sensitive to the relations between the sexes in that, those days, um, it was perceived as somewhat threatening at first when the, when the painting was first shown. Um, She was described in reviews as the new woman, the American girl, um, and everybody knew that she was very much of the present, but as I said, that could be a bit threatening. And then, oddly enough, as the painting toured and was shown around the country, um, a completely different perspective uh, was shared uh, on it by various reviewers, and people thought that it was brilliant and the most uh, remarkable thing that Sargent had ever done. So I think it was really on the cusp uh, of a change at that time of how women were perceived, and the painting was right in the middle of it.
0: There's also another famous portrait of her by Cecilia Bowe. Can you describe that one in contrast right. to the Sargent painting?
1: Well, it's it's a bit different because it's more it's it's more uh, still and um, it's quieter, but it shows um, a look I think of great intelligence on her face and great focus. Um, she's holding a book uh, with her finger in it as though it's just marking the page and she's about to go back to her reading. Um, and so it shows, it shows her beauty and it shows her her character, but she doesn't look like she's about to jump across the canvas with a, uh, you know, a, a tennis racket or anything like that.
0: So it's oh. different. I'm sorry, there was some sort of, I think the phone was twisted or something. Can we go back and do that one again?
1: Yeah, sure. Yes. Um, okay, so I was talking about the, um, the boat portrait. Yeah, how is the um, bow portrait different? Yeah. Well, the bow portrait shows Edith um, in a quieter, um, from a quieter perspective, and she has a look of intelligence and um, kind of self-assertion on her face, but she's very much in one place. She's not She's not moving. She's not athletic. She's not about to run across the room with a tennis racket or anything like that. She's got. She's holding a book, and her finger is holding her place in the book, and so she's about to go back to it. So it shows kind of a different um, intellectual side of Edith. Um, but, you know, it's it's equally um, uh, attractive, I think.
0: She was often ill after their marriage, um, and yet she still managed to play an active role in social reforms, in particular yeah. in the development of kindergartens
1: in the city, right? Right, she did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she worked when she could. She had a series of... Um, events, I guess, you know, with, with her heart. Um, she had high blood pressure throughout her life and she had other members of her family that had the same problem and other people had had strokes and, you know, it was, it, 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 it was difficult for her and she had to go and take rest cures right. at various places and people, you know, doctors, a lot of doctors were sort of quacks at that time and they prescribed cures that, um, you, you really would not want to subject somebody to, but um, she, uh, but she, she did her best and she soldiered on and she, she did uh, engage in this, this, this activity with the, um, with the kindergarten association, which at that time was really quite radical. It was uh, kindergartens were not something as they are today that everybody assumes and that, that are in every school. They were not in any school, and these people were were really reformers and wanted to. Um, wanted to uh, give children uh, a better shot from the very beginning, especially the children of immigrant uh, parents. So it was quite extraordinary work that she did.
0: We've talked a lot about Edith, so let's focus on Newton a bit. Um, sure. It comes up more than once in Love Fiercely that Newton was quite a dandy and, and prone to paying almost obsessive attention to the, the details of his clothes. Um, right. I think he, throughout the whole thing he emerges as quite a quirky figure. Can you tell us a little bit about him?
1: Yeah. um well you know he he i think that that was an element of, of his character that he was he was a bit of a dandy from when he was a teenager on and if you look at photographs of him when he was older um he has uh you know a a very pointed bearded he's got hair that's severely pointed in the uh, sorry severely parted in the middle and um that's not something that was that um unusual in those days but he he's very um He's very unusual looking um he was from the very beginning of his life he was um obsessed with various things uh whether it was inventions or collecting um uh, motorcycles or cars or uh boats or what you know he could afford to collect quite a bit you could imagine um but he was always um a, quite an intellectual he um he studied architecture. He wanted to be an architect, but in particular, he wanted to be an architect that would focus on reform and would focus on um, cleaning up tenements and producing new um, new sanitary tenements. So he's a serious person, very serious, and um, he he turned from one activity to another until he discovered really the love of his intellectual life. And that was the iconography of Manhattan Island.
0: Which is obviously worthy of an interview all into itself, but can you briefly tell us a bit about it and in particular how it consumed his life and altered his relationship with Edith?
1: Yeah, that is a big question. Um, Well, um, the iconography of Manhattan Island uh, was a, book it was originally going to be a small book and he got the idea to produce it in uh 1909 and by the time it was finished in 1928 there were six volumes each one um a significant doorstop and um and the whole collection the whole the whole enterprise had to do with maps and views which are simply simply another word for landscapes and um page after page after page of um, writing about Manhattan. It really shows everything there is to know about Manhattan from the earliest times up to his presence. Um, there's never been anything like it, and there never will be anything like it, and it's been something that that researchers and um, writers have depended on um, since it was produced, and it and yet, it's something that is not as well-known as it could be because it's hard to find. You don't really find it unless you're in a research library. Nobody owns this thing, although I have a copy of it, but very few people have it in their own home.
0: And how did his work on that for all those years, how did that affect his,
1: his relationship with Edith? Well, it was it was quite a... Um, it was a distraction from his marriage. It was a distraction from his relationship. He got more and more absorbed in this project, more and more obsessed with collecting. Um, he spent, I think, probably almost every waking minute in his, uh, study, uh, which for a long time was in the, uh, the New York Public Library. He had an office there. Um, and he had a staff that worked with him, but he began to feel as though it had to be the most, um, the most uh, all-encompassing uh, project that there ever was, and so this did have an effect. It had an effect on his health. He had health problems throughout his life, uh, and so he had a number of sort of mini breakdowns as this went along. Both him and Edith did, and it was um, it, 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 it was very difficult. It was consuming, and yet it was an extraordinary experience for him.
0: I also want to touch upon, and he brought the the Tudor Mansion over from Ipswich right. to America, which was. An extremely funny and whimsical
1: story. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, he and Edith decided that they 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 had a a, a farm in Greenwich. It was a kind of a weekend farm, and um, they were thinking about remodeling their farm. And they came across a picture of a mag in a magazine of uh, an old Tudor um, farmhouse uh, in um, in uh, Suffolk in uh, in England, and it was called High Low and they decided they just had to have this uh this this house um on their own property and so they had it shipped to the peers at Greenwich uh in six hundred and eighty eight packing cases. It, got, it was all dismantled. They got it. They re uh put it back together again and um they loved it. It was a uh, beautiful it's an amazing it was an amazing property. Um uh, But it looks very much like merry old England uh, put into the Greenwich countryside. Greenwich was all countryside at that time.
0: It's the oldest house in America, right?
1: Yeah, it was, was, (laughs) and he was very proud to say that.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for talking to us today about Love Fiercely. I know it's a dreadful question to ask an author when their books only just come out, but do you have any idea what you'll be writing next?
1: Well, actually, I have another book coming out. Um, oddly enough, in June, um, it's a novel which I've never written before. Uh, so that's an unusual experience for me, and it's called *The Orphan Master*. And it's a historical novel, a historical murder mystery that takes place in old New York in um, in 1663 Manhattan. Were so that to, that's coming out soon.
0: Were you able to use some of your research from this? Yeah, that? absolutely, Great. absolutely.
1: From 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 the, from from the, um, the iconography mm-hmm. and also from a previous book. Yeah, I was able to use it all. I was really happy oh, about brilliant. that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much.
1: Okay. Thank you. Bye bye.
0: I've been talking today with Jean Zimmerman about her new book entitled Love Fiercely A Gilded Age Romance. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.